Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. Tonight's show is about health. If we go back one year to Morwell, people near the burning coal mine were walking around with masks over their mouths and we interviewed a firefighter who was really worried about the toxic effects on his workers. So we know that climate change is bringing us more ferocious bushfires and longer droughts, and having more open-cut coal mines is just asking for trouble, if you ask me. We're going to hear later from Fiona Armstrong, who has written a book, um, a a paper on the Hunter Valley and um, coal and the health in that region. It's called Lessons from One Valley to the World. She's going to tell us how coal is not good for our health. And then we're going to hear economist Francis Gray about how coal is not good for our economy either, when we really put all the costs on the table. But first we have Professor Peter Sainsbury on the phone. Um, Peter Sainsbury is Associate Professor of Public Health at Sydney University. He's given talks in the Hunter Valley about the impact of coal on their health, as outlined in the new report, Coal and Health in the Hunter. Peter Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Great. Thanks a lot, Vivian. Uh, how did it affect you personally to meet these communities and learn what they're up against? Uh, well, that's a really interesting question. I, 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 as you have already picked up, I'm not Australian by birth, and I arrived here in 1980. And one of the very first things I did was go up to the Hunter Valley. And, you know, I, I remember it very clearly. And then a few years ago, people started talking about how it had completely changed with all these open cut mines. And it wasn't until I went again about a year ago, but then just last week, went and actually looked at the mines um, with a, a local who took us round and showed us the different aspects of them, that I really grasped the immense uh, effect these open cut mines have had up in the Upper Hunter um, and the other thing I was struck by at the public meetings was people talk about local community people as, you know, sort of, well, you're experts in what it like, it's like to live with it. And indeed they were. But the people we met 
were real experts on issues of mining and health and mining and the effects on the economy. So I was also struck by the, the passion and knowledge of the local residents. Mm. Well, um, as you're a professor of public health, I thought you might like to have play a little game with me. I'm going to uh, tell you like a little invented story of someone who I can imagine would live in the Hunter Valley. And would you just tell me the medical outcome you could predict for them living in this area? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> it's just to bring it to life and make it like a story. Uh, let's say the boy's name is Kevin. He goes to Metford Primary School and the long coal wagons pass by his school every day. His dad died last year in a mining accident. There really was a mining accident where someone from Metford died. And his mum works down at the Port Waratah Coal um, Shipping Port. So can you tell me if he grew to the sort of age of the four, his 40s or 50s staying in this environment, what kind of health outcomes might he be expect, expected to have? Um, well, I think the first thing that struck me from uh, Kevin's story, he, you know, he's at primary school, so let's say he's about eight years old or something. I mean, firstly, he's had this terrible event in his life of his father, first of all, dying, and secondly, dying in a mining accident. Um, now, as, a, as I've said in one or two talks I've given, my grandfather was a miner in England for about 50 or 60 years, actually working at the coal face. And back in the 50s, then coal mining was still quite a dangerous occupation with, with fall, uh, roof falls and blasts and, and uh, explosions and so on, and just machine accidents. But mining has become a lot safer. And so we don't hear as much about that. But the fact is, it's still quite a dangerous occupation and people do still get injured permanently on occasions and killed as Kevin's dad did. So, so he's lost his dad and he's lost his dad to an industrial accident. And basically, there should be preventable. So, he, you know, he's eight years old and this is terrible things happen to him. And on top of that then it's quite possible that when he's at school, if he lives near the railway line or near the road as well, then it's quite possible that the dust from the railway line where the, the uncovered wagons that are carrying the coal to, to Newcastle every day, the dust blowing off them, the coal dust, the, the dust blowing off the uh, heaps around the coal mines, it's quite possible that he's already got some respiratory trouble. Um, if he's prone to asthma, it may be making him worse. But it may indeed be giving him uh, respiratory infections, uh, nose, uh, upper respiratory infections and so on. So it's affecting his health now, never mind when he gets to 40 years of age. But if he, if he uh, carries on living in the area, then and let's say he gets a job not in mining, just say works, becomes a school teacher in the local school or something, um, he's still going to be exposed to all those dusts. And it's quite likely with the very, very fine dusts that they'll go into his lungs and then they get absorbed into his bloodstream, just like the oxygen that gets absorbed into our bloodstream. And then that causes more respiratory problems, bronchitis, asthma, and it also causes heart attacks and it causes cancer. So he's got problems now. And if he stays in the area, even if he doesn't go into mining, he's likely to have respiratory problems, heart problems and possibly cancer when he gets older. Right. Thank you. That's brought it to life beautifully. One of the uh, 
Climate and Health Alliance recommendations was about restoring the public's right to appeal in planning decisions, such as the recent one to approve an expansion of T4 at Newcastle. I was really shocked by that decision because I went to the public hearing and I would say about 90% of the people speaking up were against the T4, you know, coal port expanding. Anyway, Prugowat approved it and it's now um, going well on the you know, on paper, they've got approval to go ahead. How hard is it for public health experts like you to engage with the planning minister to say, look, you've made a mistake, this really can't go on? Uh, well, again, I think there's a couple of issues there. Um, where I work, which is um, on the southwestern side of Sydney, then we are quite active in, in trying to get involved with with planning applications, with the local councils, with the, with the Ministry of uh, Planning and so on. And we put submissions in uh, for major developments, not just a, somebody wanting to extend their house and so on. Um, and, and on occasions, the, 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 uh, the planning department does listen to us and does take into account our, uh, our comments and our recommendations. I get the impression, and this is an impression, that that's often a bit due to who in the planning department actually is dealing with that particular issue. So once or twice when we've recommended that health impact assessments be conducted, then that has been made a requirement for the planning applicant. Um, So it's variable, I think, but we we have to say on occasions that the the Department of Planning, I should say, not the Minister, I shouldn't Mm. first. It, the, the Department of Planning is receptive to our comments and, an idea, and our ideas. On other occasions, they're not quite so receptive. But on that issue, though, of the, the change that the government introduced to the law, then, I mean, speaking personally as someone who, who's been interested in democracy and there is evidence relating democracy to health as well, um, it is a associated with better health, living in more democratic societies. I I must say that 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 decision did seem to me to completely undercut any credibility that a government might have in in talking about citizen participation, about citizenship, about democracy, where a local group takes an issue to court, wins twice in court, and then the government says, well, our response to that is we'll take away your right to appeal and your right to comment. Yes. I mean, that just seems to me to undermine the democratic process, which is so essential to a nation like Australia. Yes, well, we had um, Bob Massey, who's a Harvard ec- um, economist coming out. Uh, he was in Sydney two weeks ago, and he, he said we need to demand the leadership that we need. We, you know, it's getting quite dire that we're having leadership who it's almost amounts to corruption. I won't say that on air, but, you know, it seems to be that they're taking away the chances for us to question decisions like that. It's outrageous. <coughs> I, I, I met Bob the day before he came to you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's an inspiring speaker, I agree. And, I mean, he similarly was, like you say, was shocked by that. Mm. What are the uh, Climate and Health Alliance's recommendations about public disclosure? Now, when talking now about greenhouse gas emissions, not so much the local health impacts, but the big greenhouse gas emissions from each project, I think you're recommending that we have more in that way. Well, certainly we, in in our report, and I think Fiona um, will probably talk about that uh, some more, 
Uh, but in our report, we do look at the very local implications um, of the coal mining in the Hunter for villages, particularly uh, Singleton and Musselbrook. We look at the effects in Newcastle and we look at more broadly the effects in, uh, in the Hunter Valley and in New South Wales. But you're right. We also try to estimate the health consequences of the global warming that will be caused by burning the, 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 the coal mined in the Hunter Valley, regardless of where it's burned, whether it's burned in power stations in the Hunter or whether it's burned in India or China or wherever, um, because it, will, it is already significant. And if there is expansion of the mines in the Hunter, it will become even more significant. And are you, you requesting that projects be asked to submit that sort of data? Um, well, we certainly think that that data, generally speaking, should be made more available. I, I must say, you've caught that. Do we? Oh. I'm sure we actually make a, a, a firm recommendation about that, do we, Vivian? About actually, um, for instance, new coal mine applications assessing their CO2 emissions. I think I read it somewhere in my notes, but I just don't have them here. But I think in general, we most people would agree with you, if, even if you haven't put it so precisely as that, that really some mention of glo- uh, greenhouse gas emissions should be attached to projects because it's not as if nothing is coming out of them. Anyway, we'll move on to the next question because no, I, I don't have the notes here. I, think I may, may realise what you're talking about now yeah. then. Yeah. What we do recommend very strongly is that health impact assessments be conducted on yes. new applications. Mm. A well-conducted health impact assessment would take into account those local, regional uh-huh. and more global effects. So, sorry, I, I think that's probably what you're remembering yeah. there, that we make that recommendation. Yeah. Well, that will be good. It seems pie in the sky at the moment. Um, if it's hard to stop the local impacts of coal, I think you're finding that it is hard to even cover the coal wagons. Um, how much harder is it to stop the international health impacts of our exported coal through climate change? Well, that's a much much bigger issue. You're right. Um, and I personally am quite pessimistic that the international community is going to get its act together quickly enough to stop not just two degrees, but even three or four degrees of global warming by the end of this century. That said, I'm probably a fraction more optimistic now than I was six or nine months ago. We have seen some movements, particularly by China and the USA and Europe, um, and certainly some international bodies, WHO, UN, World Bank, that have indicated that they do now fully understand the implications of the road we're on. Now, not the commitments that the countries have, have individually made don't add up to anywhere near enough to prevent two degrees of global warming this century. We're still very much on track to hit that. Um, but nonetheless, the, it does seem to me that the sorts of things that nations and, uh, and multinational bodies around the world are saying, it's much more towards reaching a, a realistic um, Uh, solution in in Paris at the end of this year than it was a year ago. I think what what people in Australia, perhaps not your listeners actually, but people in Australia generally don't realise is that Australia is way out of line. Mm. The, 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 The discussion, the conversations, the reticence to take any action by government 
And let's be fair here, it's not only the Liberal government. The previous Labour government was, was not really doing that much. They yeah. were aiming for 5% mm. reduction by 2020. So there's a general reticence by governments to take action. And, and the, the public discussion is way behind what it is in Europe and North America. And even what's coming out of, for instance, the, the Chinese government. Right. Well... You know, I appreciate what you say, and I'm glad you said it. It needs to be said really loudly. And I think I mentioned to you before that I'm working on another radio program for the future about the exact jobs and making a transition, a fair transition for for the jobs of people in coal-rich areas. And um, Bob Massey was telling us about that, uh, and we're going to have a program with him. But I found the ALP and the Liberals very reticent. As you say, it's the perfect word, reticent. They haven't got a blueprint. They haven't got a game plan. They haven't got any regional transition plan for anything in the future beyond the next three years. And I've been very disappointed. It's been very revealing to find that out. But um, I think we should end on a more uh, visionary note because I think medical people are able to see the, you know, the horror of it. You see the x-rays when the person has got the lung cancer um, and you do anything to prevent it, I'm sure. So I'd like to quote to you um, Dr. Linda Rudolph from the United States Climate and Health Alliance. Apparently it's an international body. I, d- I thought Fiona had invented this organisation herself. Yes, but I, it's... I, I know Linda. <laughs> It's international. But um, Dr. Linda Rudolph said there are so many known opportunities to simultaneously reduce the threat of climate change to our well-being and improve the health of millions. Could you tell us a bit more what you see as the opportunities and how can we get government to invest in them? Well, that's certainly true. I I think we talked about the co-benefits, that similar actions will reduce greenhouse uh, gas emissions and so reduce the the, the degree of global warming. It's not going to stop it. We're already committed to some degree of global warming. But the same actions can reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, reduce the amount of global warming, have very positive effects on the environment and ecosystems, and have very positive effects on um, human health, which I think has probably been under-recognised is the effect that climate change is having on human health and will only increase. So, I mean, the things that we can do most obviously is move from our sort of complete addiction to fossil fuels um, towards renewable energy sources. Um, Combine that with greater energy efficiency. The two together have immense potential to to achieve all three those three aims. Less uh, global warming, a better environment and better health. So and I think Bob Massey makes that point well, you know, that there are wonderful opportunities as we progressively cut down the uh, particularly in the hunt of the coal industry. It's not going to happen overnight. You know, even if I wanted it to, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take, even for me, optimistically, 15, 25 years. But nonetheless, we need to be making the decisions now that says we are going to stop mining coal, we're going to stop burning coal in the Hunter, and we are going to start building up on our strengths there, our um, agricultural industries, our dairy industries, our wine to some extent, um, the tourism industries, and as Bob makes the point very clearly, that these immense scars in the landscape caused by open-cut mining, we can rehabilitate those, 
plant more trees and we know that trees are good good for people they like to see trees that see nature but they're also good for cleaning up carbon dioxide in the air mm-hmm. so i think there's lots of opportunities in that direction but if we look just at transport as we reduce our dependence on the car which you know is at present is just about totally petrol driven there's not not not, not that many hybrid cars or electric cars mm. if we can reduce our dependence on the car and the oil industry and get people walking more get people cycling more get people using public transport more then again it's much much cleaner for the environment and it's better for people's health so i think there are loads of opportunities there and i haven't talked about food that's another area we'll do that another time i've loved talking to you i think that was wonderful i like hearing your english accent and um your you know powerful way of talking it's 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 true and i'd like to hear a bit more what what's happening in other countries. For example, the UK seems to be leading on some of these um, aspects. So uh, let's talk again. Thank you very much for today. I'd love and- to, and I'm sure uh, Fiona, you know, Fiona basically wrote this report. I mean, yes. she had, you know, help. We all help, but, but Fiona's the star of this report, I have to say. <laughs> well, she was very modest so, about it, but she's coming on after oh, you. No, no, there's no doubt about it, Vivian. Fiona's <laughs> the star of this report. Okay, thank you very much. Thank okay, you. Lovely to talk to you. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. Let's start with your story. How did the impact of climate change on health become your main theme? Well, look, I guess, I mean, everybody's sort of personal story about how they respond to climate change is, is often a sort of a long one, but I guess the, the short story is I, I worked as a journalist, I worked in health policy, um, and I became aware of the... Um, impacts of climate change on health but also recognise that the voice of health professionals was largely missing from the debate. So in 2009 I left my job to do a Masters in Politics and Public Policy and I focused on climate policy options for Australia really in part to answer answer my own personal questions about why, what, what was happening and why weren't we responding. Mm. So what that led to was a decision to um, a, approach some of my colleagues and, and set up an alliance of organisations that could speak with one voice, that would act as a network in the health sector to build um, awareness of the health impacts of climate change, but also bring the voices from those health organisations from all different disciplines to the climate policy discussion. Well, when The Lancet says climate change is the biggest threat to human health, it sounds a bit abstract. Um, could you put a human face on that? Yeah, I think we've, we've understood a lot more since the first um, issue from The Lancet in 2009, an incredibly important issue, which was really a line in the sand that sort of labelled climate change as a health issue. Now, what that means is that climate change... Um, Although, you know, on a global scale it appears to happen slowly, in fact it's having an impact on our local weather that means that um, our own experiences of extreme weather events, heat waves, bushfires and floods and so on is is becoming much more prominent and, um, and visible to people. And people would understand that all of those extreme weather events, particularly in Australia, carry significant implications to human health. So obviously with bushfires there's... Um, you know, the threats of, threat of burns and, um, and mortality um, associated with bushfires, but then there's the disruption um, to con- fractured communities after, after suffering an event. In terms of flooding, there's potential for 
um, obviously loss of, of homes and livelihoods and lives, but then there's also the spread of diseases as sewerage and other pollutants enter floodwaters. Um, and then, you know, on a sort of global scale, I think the most recent report of the IPCC really um, laid very bare the risks for children, in particular in the developing world, associated with declining crop yields um, and uh, the risks of, of, of stunting and malnutrition. Mm. Well, I think just before Christmas, I interviewed an ambulance driver and he gave me the list of the day's calls, you know, what they were for. And quite a large number of them were for heat stress. You know, elderly people affected by heat stress or people with pre-existing conditions made worse by the heat wave that we were having. So I, I think the medical professionals are really feeling it right there on their front line. But there's something wrong with climate change. I've just been reading George Marshall's book and, and he tries to say, look, we, we need a problem to be immediate to, for our brain to kick in with the right response. And stories like Ebola, you know, get everybody moving, especially journalists and, and doctors too. And it, but climate change, the story, you know, how can we frame the story? It all seems to be about stopping coal, preventing deforestation or... It's a million miles away from health. You know, we can't sort of compute those two things together, whereas Ebola is about, you know, heroic efforts and finding a cure. So when George Marshall says our brains are wired to ignore climate change, I think he's onto something there. I wondered, what are your thoughts about how we can get around this? Yeah, look, I think that's really interesting. I haven't um, haven't read George's book yet, but I know that he's making an incredibly important contribution in terms of how we understand why we respond in the ways that we respond. And I think that's true. I mean, as a, as a concept for many people, it, climate change seems distant in, in time and space. But I guess one of the interesting things and useful things about our work with, with the health sector and promoting the health message is that, that putting climate change in the context of health does help to make it more personally relevant for people and something that they can appreciate in an individual context, so something that, you know, is happening to them or their relatives if it's a heat wave or mm. those other extreme events or, or, or risks of infectious diseases and indeed air pollution. I mean, one of the things about a warming planet is that we have um, increases in ground level ozone is very different to the ozone layer, but when we burn fossil fuels for transport in particular, we get this sort of ground-level smog, which is very harmful to respiratory systems and is, is part of the mix that already exists in terms of particulates and other gases. Mm. But um, under, in, a, in a warming world, ozone is, um, is increasing a lot. So there, is, there are those effects as well. And, um, and while heat waves tend to affect people um, who are either working outdoors or who are already medically compromised or elderly or infants, Ozone actually affects the lungs of healthy people, so it's something that affects everybody. Mm. Well, another thing Marshall said, I've just been to his um, workshop last week, so it's sort of at the front of my mind. He said that there's something uh, like a socially constructed silence around climate change. You know, you go to a dinner party and bring up climate change and, you know, everybody goes quiet. They don't want to talk about it. They know not to go there. They think, no, that'll ruin the dinner party or something like that. That's what he gave the example of the dinner party, but... I think people in Australia, because we're so resource-rich, it's like the Norwegians have got their oil and the Venezuelans have got oil, we've got our coal. And so it's very embarrassing for us to have to take climate action because it's 
in many people's mind, you know, we think our economy would collapse if we stopped mining coal. And it makes us feel guilty and complicit and, you know, to think about our coal exports creating extreme weather for other countries. So um, did you find this silence, you know, when you were talking to people, I know you've been on a speaking tour about your paper, you know, you can talk about the particulate matter and the local effects on, on people's health of coal, but when you extend it to climate change, which I know you always do, did you find that there was that peculiar silence or people less willing to talk about that? Look, I think it's interesting, and I agree there is a conspiracy of silence about it. It's a little bit like politics. It's sort of not, not polite or considered best avoided. But um, the reality is, is that we, we do need to normalise discussions around climate change, and, um, and that makes it possible for us to sort of see forward towards solutions. So I think that, the health, again, the health frame is very valuable, and, and one of the things that we do talk about, um, perhaps even more than the potential risks, from climate change are the benefits of climate action and what the opportunities are in terms of low-carbon lifestyles in that they're healthier, that cleaner energy systems will, you know, clean up the air, that mm. we're more active and public transport gets people um, out outdoors and, and, um, and mobile and that's better for, you know, their physical and their mental health and and so on. So that's, that's a useful way to talk about it. I guess the other way, and, and in terms of the example that you just gave in, um, in relation to coal and climate change or fossil fuels and climate change, is to talk about the local impacts for people when we burn fossil fuels. So yes, coal and other fossil fuels are harmful when we burn them for energy and transport, and they cause local direct and immediate health impacts on people in local communities, but they also um, drive climate change. So I think being able to tell that sort of local to global story helps people to contextualise why those things are bad, yep. um, why they contribute to climate change, but why, why they're a, a, an immediate threat at a more personal level as well. And, um, and that can lead to you know, greater support for action, for mitigation, um, for policies that will not only improve health at the local level, but um, help us to reduce our contribution to um, global emissions as well. Well, another thing about our, our relationship to coal, as I said, people do think our, you know, our economy depends on it. That may not be true. And now the coal price is falling. You know, it, it may be reaching its retirement age, as um, Goldman Sachs said that, that coal is reaching its retirement age. But um, I'm worried that there's not really much of a plan out there for jobs in the world after coal. And I'd like to know what lessons did you learn when you were doing your research, which might help workers make a transition away from coal jobs? Yeah, look, I think um, there's, there's no doubt that, that coal is on the way out. And that's a really strong point that we make um, in relation to the report that we just put out on coal and health in the hunter, that um, not only is the in industry harmful to people at the local level and there's a massive contribution to climate change in terms of the social costs of carbon, and in fact we estimate that the current production levels of Hunter Valley coal are causing between 16 and $66 billion in climate damages. That's just the Hunter Valley and that's just current production. So there are huge risks associated with expanded production um, in that area. But also um, we're saying that because coal is coming to an end, that institutional investors and countries, superannuation 
um, organisations are beginning to recognise the carbon bubble that exists, as in we can't burn all the coal and um, oil that we have because we'll drive the planet beyond two degrees. And in fact, in Australia, we really can only burn about 10% of our coal reserves. Mm. So the industry is coming to an end. There needs to be recognition that there's going to be a transition. So there, are, there, there needs to be, you know, investment from governments to help those regions to transition. But those communities themselves need to, um, you know, um, begin to, to have those discussions about a transition plan um, so that, you know, when, when coal does end, um, that it doesn't happen suddenly and that there are other industries in place. I mean... Um, using the hunter as an example, again, the, the the coal industry is crowding out other valuable industries like agriculture and vineyards and thoroughbred breeding and so on who are reluctant or unwilling to expand because of the air pollution from the coal industries but also the 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 loss of aesthetic and environmental values from the region. So, um, yeah, there's, we, we need to start that process now and... Um, and uh, we need to spend what remaining fossil fuels we have to put in place the transition so that when we've used up our carbon budget, we're not saying, gosh, what are we going to do now? We'll have that, um, you, you know, renewable energy, energy efficiency initiatives and new industries that can yeah. replace coal. I'm rather dismayed to hear you talk like that, though, because I would have thought that those communities and the unions and the people in that industry would have started the transition, would have a blueprint for re-educating people, for example, and I haven't found anybody yet who's advanced in that. Look, I think there's a lot of denial in the industry, but I think I think um, that there are unions, and I think the, there's an example um, in the Latrobe Valley, and I just forget the name of it. For, um, the Earth Workers? The Earth Workers yes, that's right. exactly, yeah. which, is, which is a really good example of supporting right. people to make a transition. So okay. I think there are positive examples that we need to have more of them and I think um, that would be helpful if industry and political leadership would acknowledge where we are because yeah. I think people do look to our political leaders and the industry for guidance about what lies ahead and mm. the the fact that the coal industry and mining companies are insisting that there is a strong future for coal is really sort of contributing to that community delusion around it, I guess, and, mm. and, in, and inhibiting the transition. So the more that we can bring other voices and um, voices of the, the health sector and scientists and other industries um, and civil society into the discussion, I think that's helpful. Well, one of the most uh, famous examples is the Morwell fire last year, and I think a lot of health voices were heard then because that was extremely dangerous for everybody's health, including the firefighters. But one of your recommendations is that proper fire suppression plans should be put in place for mines. I was surprised that they aren't already in place, but how would that protect our health in a changing climate? Well, I mean, we, as you say, we had the extraordinary example of a disused coal mine near the town of Morwell in Victoria, which, um, due to the failure of, of adequate fire suppression systems, the bushfire was able to take hold in that mine and burn for many weeks and coating the local community in choking, you know, dangerous smog, which we know contributed to at least 11 premature deaths. So um, our lessons from that and, and certainly from the inquiry that, um, um, that looked into the, um, that fire found that the, the mine owners didn't have adequate 
fire suppression systems and in a, a, a climate changed world where um, our bushfire scenario is that we will have a much higher risk of bushfires and that they will be more frequent and more severe in an area like the Hunter Valley with a huge number, um, dozens of open cut coal mines um, in a very hot summer, the risk of a bushfire taking hold there and um, and really coating, you know, the whole of New South Wales with choking smoke is a, mm. is a massive risk. It so is. At, the, at the very minimum that can be done is to make sure that, um, you know, it's obviously a, a, a very combustible material, coal, um, and there needs to be, um, you know, regulations to ensure that we don't have a mine fire getting out of control like the one at Morwell again. Okay, well, I'm still on the idea of regulations and... Um, governmental rules that you'd like, you know, policymakers to change. How would you like to see the state planning and the environmental protection agencies change their focus? Because at the moment it seems quite corrupt, and I think people feel very betrayed, not bet- not protected at all from people I've spoken to. Well, I think that's true, and I think that the um, the current planning systems really um, disregard the wishes of the community and. Uh, and don't take into account community concerns. And another serious concern for us is that whilst there are environmental impact assessments for projects and um, often quite inadequate in our view, um, but even um, even an, an even more glaring omission is the um, lack of any health impact assessment. So our report and you know a swag of internationally peer-reviewed literature that exi- has existed for some time points to very serious health impacts associated with coal. So it, it beggars belief, really, that in the 21st century that we are authorising to proceed projects that are extraordinarily harmful at the local level mm. and extremely dangerous in terms of their contribution to climate change itself a health risk. Mm. And we are not evaluating the health and social impacts associated with that or the climate implications. Now, that's just really... Um, I can't think of another way to describe it other than a gross irresponsibility. And the New South Wales government or any government that are approving coal mines now are not taking into account the interests of their constituents in doing so. No, well, we interviewed last week someone called uh, Tom Mitchell about the Whitehaven coal up at um, Malls Creek. And really, they're bringing in the riot police and... The ordinary citizens, you know, that were locking themselves on. These are people who are well informed and knew the dan- know the dangers. And they, um, I think, Professor Colin Butler was given a, you know, he may be sued for a huge amount of money taken, and people are arrested. Over three hundred people are arrested already. So the public are speaking, you know, with their feet, with direct action. And it does seem at this stage in history, like absolutely criminal, really, that they would be considering. You know, a government should be making it easy for more mines to be opened up like that. Well, it does really speak to the depth of, of concern among health professionals and other members of the community about the failure of governments to respond on this issue when yeah. we've got people who are, you know, writing and speaking and researching and publishing on the issue and feel that the only pathway left to them is direct action. And I think that that's a a brave choice and an important choice because that may be what it takes to really get a response. So that was Fiona Armstrong. She's the founder of the Climate and Health Alliance and the writer of this new publication called Coal and Health in the Hunter, Lessons from One Valley for the World.
Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening. back with the Beyond Zero Emission Show and our next speaker is Francis Gray. He is the founder of Economists at Large and he's been on a tour of the Hunter Valley speaking about the impacts of coal on our health. Welcome Francis. Hello Vivian. Could you tell me what is the econo- economic cost locally of digging, burning and exporting coal? Okay, so there's effectively, um, in summary, uh, there's other costs as well, but in summary there's three costs. So there's a $600 million per annum cost for the Hunter Valley as a whole uh, from the, the five or now four coal-fired power stations in the valley. Then there's um, an individual amount of cost for each of the towns of Singleton, Muzzlebrook and Newcastle from the uh, emissions of coal uh, from the power stations and the mines that are landed in each of those um, those three cities. And we're looking at $13 million in the case of Newcastle and and, and $47 million per year in the case of Singleton, for example. Mm. And the third cost is the, um, the global cost of the coal that's dug up in the Hunter Valley, the world's largest coal port, and, and, and shipped out to Newcastle. And that's in the order of, um, depending on which number you want to choose, between 16 and $66 billion per annum on the numbers that Fiona's report here has put together. Well, how do you calculate that, that sort of cost? Uh, with a very big abacus uh, to, to do that, um, but, but essentially, what uh, so what uh, the report for the Health Alliance has done has summarised the work of other uh, economists and researchers. So to get the six hundred million dollar figure for the Hunter Valley, what uh, was done was there was a report produced by the Academy for Techno- Technological Sciences and Engineering in Melbourne. They have done a report which looked at the cost and benefits of each form of power generation in Australia. And they took the um, Health Alliance has taken the numbers from that report for coal-fired power generation, which argued that there's a cost of $13 for every megawatt hour of electricity produced in the valley. And they did that by estimating the, the health impacts of, uh, of the emissions from the power stations. So the power station producing PM10 and PM2.5 emissions. Mm. Those are spreading like an aerosol over the valley in European Union terms, up to a thousand kilometres from the emission stack itself. And they're dropping on the residents uh, and they're being in- inhaled by the residents and going down into their lungs, mm. causing health problems, not just uh, sickness, but death. And in fact, those numbers are actually dominated by the mortality impact. In other words, people who have died and are dying and will die as a result of breathing in these emissions deep into their lungs. Well, I want to know why the Health Department can't just present this bill 
to the polluters like Rio Tinto and Port Waratah Coal, whose uncovered coal wagons let these particulates fly off into the community? Yes, that's a very good question. And uh, not having been to the Hunter Valley before in daylight uh, and spending three days there, I was quite struck by the fact that I think the valley has in effect almost been sacrificed by New South Wales. Both sides of politics um, have decided that its coal is more valuable than its people in effect. And and they have just simply allowed this situation to roll on for decades in the valley without doing the sums on, on the cost, without measuring the impact on the health of the local population, which as a government I would have thought was a basic obligation understand that side of the equation if you decide to sacrifice them decide what work out what the cost is and then work out what your net gain is and be honest about it but um i think this issue has been buried very deeply um Mm. in new south wales and as a net result the health department i think is not empowered to ask the right questions it's an inconvenient truth Well, we are seeing attacks now on Medicare, and a man on the tram yesterday told me we can't afford the rising costs of medicine, so he was convinced by the government's uh, opinions. Um, And yet I think that we're giving, I know we're giving subsidies to the fossil fuel industry that's causing a lot of these health problems. Do you think we could reframe this madness, you know, that we're subsidising the fossil fuel industry and paying the bill in our lungs and in our children's lives. Uh, Could we reframe this madness in a sort of economic terms? I think you mentioned something about an air toll. Well, that's right. Uh, So we have a society that's obsessed with the road toll for obvious reasons. It's dramatic and it's killing people. Yet you look at the air toll in the Hunter Valley and likewise in Sydney and Melbourne and other urban centres, and it's killing people at the same, broadly speaking, depending on the urban the population density, at the same rate. Uh, and so the death toll in the Hunter Valley from this air emission problem and the health uh, and the sickness and the health costs associated with all of this are of the same order as the road toll. And therefore, you would expect in a public policy sense, they ought to be, uh, they ought to be identified by government and reduced, particularly if um, concerns about you know, rising Medicare costs are, are an issue. I personally don't think the cost is the issue here. I think it's something else. But the, the, the fact of the matter is these costs are not are welcome and they're, they're cost, they are cost in the community. So the question is really for government uh, and the industry, what is the future here and is there an, another future? And the implication of the continued progress of um, you know, government plans to expand coal mines, which have only in the last couple of weeks has been announced, would suggest that government still hasn't got the message Yet if you pick up um, Renew Economy uh, website, for example, they run a story recently about the future that Rio Tinto is actually um, walking backwards and away from its coal assets at this particular point in history. Uh, They've started to sell down their assets and they're not alone in, in that. So the smart money is starting to move and it's moving away from coal and it's moving towards the future. It's just the government left, um, you know, the, waiting for its cargo cult mentality to basically um, continue. But um, they'll find themselves, I think, left alone with that if they keep thinking in that in that way. Mm. Well, as an economist, do you see any value in subsidising coal? Well, as, 
as an economist, I'd have to say that they'd probably take my degree away if I said there's any value <laughs> in subsidising anything. Uh, but uh, before, before they rush in and take my degree off me, uh, there, are, there are sometimes reasons to subsidise things, and that's where something brings a, a net benefit in addition to the private action or the government action that caused the, that was the, the generator of that, um, that effect. But in this case, where something is causing a negative effect on society, the appropriate uh, response is to tax it, definitely not to subsidise it, but to do the opposite, to tax it and to reduce it and to minimise it and, and hopefully eventually uh, make, it go, make it go away altogether. Mm. So I, um, the opposite is true here. Uh-huh. Taxes are required, perhaps. I'm not sure what your organisation, Economists at Large, do, but can you explain why we still see coal as valuable to our economy, to jobs and to its prosperity, and we don't really put a value on health and on the ecosystem, on the food bowl and the health of people? So I'd like to know what's an alternative model that puts value on those things? Yep. So economists at large, we do economic analysis for, for all sorts of groups in society who need to put their argument in a, in a, in a voice that government can understand. Government speaks the language of economics. And uh, that, so we've taken this information and we try and present it in a way that the government will process it. In terms of, a, of an alternative um, approach here, government has, has suffered some lock-in, uh, past dependence, as it's known. You know. They're on a certain trajectory, and they've been on that trajectory with coal for 200 years in the Hunter Valley for at least 40 to 50 years, if not longer. And it's very hard for them to think of anything else other than coal. And I hear that from people involved in, say, for example, the hydrogen economy. That they, um, that you talk to government and they say, oh, no, no, we do coal. Uh, it's hydrogen stuff. That's not got a future. That's never worked. That was a Hindenburg. But the, um, so the, the alternative is the budding and emerging new industries around, from solar to, to wind to batteries to energy efficiency. And, in fact, these industries are now so big, so significant and so powerful that they are threatening the existence of coal, I, I, I believe. So we see, for instance, in um, eastern Australia that um, effectively our coal-fired generators now are not making any profits any- anymore. Those, in- those uh, plants have lost their profitability thanks to rooftop solar. Rooftop solar now kicks in extra electricity in the hot afternoon, just like now, and that takes out the extra power that the coal industry used to supply in order to make their only profit for the year. So effectively, this industry is already on edge Mm. and uh, in Australia, um, as we speak, and that's similarly in other parts of the world. Well, that's marvellous. You've put it very clearly. I, I heard about that, that peak energy. That's where they used to make their big money and now they're not getting it. So how economically responsible do you think our government is? You know, you say they're locked into the old paradigm, but they can't afford to be. They're, in, they're responsible for the management of this country. And are they just rejecting economic advice about the rapid decline of coal or is it just not getting through to them? Uh, they're, they're, they're locked in. They can't. They can't see it because politicians are extremely conservative, I might add, on both sides of politics. Mm. Uh, and they're, they're very low to upset the uh, furniture. Uh, they'd rather someone else upset the furniture than they can go around and, and look good for cleaning up the mess. Uh, and, and in this case, you know, coal you know, looks superficially good because it generates a certain amount of revenue. If you take the numbers we have here, which are publicly available, been available for decades and, and based on solid science and economic analysis from the European Union and elsewhere, 
um, every every ice, every megawatt of hour of electrical power from coal is costing us the same amount again in health costs and so on. So if they understood that, um, they would be alarmed. Um, they, if they understood that there were new opportunities arising and that coal actually wasn't going to be the big export earner, it will be the big export earner for a while. It will take some time to unwind. It will be a long journey. But it's not going to be the expansionary um, industry that they've seen in the last 10 years. Uh, they, they, would, um, they would start to prepare for a future. Uh, no, I, I, we have to give them... I have to be a bit soft on them on the grounds that you know we've seen a massive growth in coal in the last 10 years and oh. the world is in, in an unprecedented year of economic growth. It has. It's been uh, shocking. And people in the cities don't know about it. I don't think they haven't seen these mines, but now you've travelled around the Hunter and Professor Peter Sainsbury said he was shocked to see the extent and, and, and they're growing. So most city people don't Indeed. know. Indeed, and, and I, I was shocked to, to look at the numbers, you know, from an economist's point of view, you know, because they've gone from 60 million tonnes a year of coal out of Newcastle to 150 million tonnes oh. a year of coal out of Newcastle, with possibilities going to 220 million tonnes mm. of coal out of Newcastle mm. in the next few years. When you start to wrap your head around those numbers, you, you, you can see the massive growth, and that, of course, is the rise of China and India. That is unprecedented in human history, that sort of uh, economic expansion that was seen in China. So from a political point of view, the poor politicians are sitting there mm. really not knowing what to do about that, but they actually need to actually take a good look at China, where if they look closely, they would see that China has said, you know, we missed the Industrial Revolution, we missed the IT Revolution, and we are going to own the mm. Energy Revolution. Yes. And that means that they are the biggest investor in every form of energy. And yes, they, build, they were building a coal-fired power station. They're opening one every week. I believe they're now opening 35 a year for the reduction. And, and they intend to own solar power, wind power, and every other form of renewable energy. Mm. Uh, and in fact, it's because of them that solar panels have dropped in price and are now on a million Australian housetops. And, uh, you know, and they have only just begun. And what China has recognised, which Australia needs to understand, is that if they want to, if China wants to reach their stated goal of equally the United States in economic and military power in about 45 years from now, they can't get there down the same old path all the rest of us trod over the last 200 years. So they need to do something radically different. And in doing something radically different, they're going to make coal companies redundant. Mm. Well, on that powerful note, thank you very much for speaking to us. I hope we can speak to you again. I had more questions, but we haven't got time. Um, but really, thank you, um, Francis, for giving us your ideas. I hope the audience will run with those ideas and perhaps they'll also read Renew Economy. You can give a plug to that um, online journal because it's really good. I notice you're reading it. I, I read it every day too and it's marvellous. For new ideas, it's just not what's in The Age and The Herald or the, you know, the other papers. It's just new stuff. Um, what action would you like us to take, Francis? Well, I, I think that um, the, the public at large should continue wherever they can, firstly to um, look at solar panels uh, if they can and, and invest in those, keep their eye out for what's coming next, which is batteries in household. The battery in the household is the, uh, is the, uh, the death spiral moment for the energy grid in Australia and at which point there will be a crisis <laughs> and government will need to address it because they own most of the, um, the grid in this country mm. and most of the generators. Beyond, beyond that, I think they, the public also needs to look at energy efficiency in their own properties and houses because energy prices are likely to rise considerably. They have risen now and they're likely to continue rising. Okay. So look at energy efficiency. 
That's fantastic. That's as much as we've got time for. There's plenty more, I'm sure, but thank you very much. That was Francis Gray from Economists at Large. And listeners, I just have to thank uh, the people who spoke tonight. Um, In summary, Australia's lagging behind the world, getting out of coal and gas, and Fiona Armstrong's report, Lessons from One Valley for the World, shows us we need to demand that planning departments look at the health impacts locally, locally and globally of our coal industry. So thanks very much to um, Associate Professor Peter Sainsbury from Sydney University, Fiona Armstrong from Climate and Health Alliance, and economist Francis Gray from Economists at Large. And I have a job to advertise. Usually I give you some action listeners, but tonight you might like to apply for a job. Uh, Climate and Health Alliance is, has a job vacancy part-time, a contract position for a project officer. They want someone to outreach and engage with medical professionals. They need experience in implementing initiatives in healthcare and a commitment to engage the health sector in tackling climate change and a health-related degree is an advantage. Contact uh, Climate and Health Alliance on, I'll give you the phone number if you've got a pencil, 0438900005. And you could email the convener. Uh, her address is convener at kaha.org.au. Convener at kaha.org.au. Thanks to Jane for putting this show to air and for the rest of the team for the podcast and the promotion. And please join Beyond Zero Emissions and subscribe to 3CR. We need your help. We need everyone on board. As you can see, things are speeding up and everyone needs to be involved. We would love your help, especially at Beyond Zero Emissions. So thanks. The next program is Save Albert Park and tune in next week to the Beyond Zero Emissions show at 5 p.m.